0: Hi there, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Rafael DeLeo. He's the author of American Imperialism's Undead, The Occupation of Haiti and the Rise of Caribbean Anticolonialism, published in 2016 by University of Virginia Press. As the subtitle... Hi there, and welcome to New Books in Caribbean Studies. I'm your host, Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Rafael Delio. He's the author of American Imperialism's Undead, The Occupation of Haiti and the Rise of Caribbean Anticolonialism, published in 2016 by University of Virginia Press. As the subtitle suggests, Delio argues that the occupation shaped anticolonial discourses throughout the Caribbean, and he looks specifically at authors like C.L.R. James, Eric Walrond, and George Padmore. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So, Raphael, welcome so much to the show, and thanks for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate it. It's great to be here, and I appreciate you taking the time to read the book.
0: Well, I really enjoyed it. Um, We are going to talk about American imperialism's undead for um, a little bit, but I was hoping to just start by asking you how you ended up as a scholar of Caribbean literature, and more specifically, how you came to this project.
1: Sure. So... um... The, the, the first part of the question, well, I, I mean, a lot of what the book is about is uncertainty about motives, and I, it's hard for me to answer that. I mean, I have a lot of sort of answers to that question when people ask me. I spent a couple of years living in the Bahamas when I was very young, and I always thought that had nothing to do with it because I, was, I left when I was three, but then when I had my own two- and three-year-old, I realized how much you're really shaped by your experiences in that time period. Mm. So, I mean, that was part of it. As an undergraduate, I um, studied Caribbean literature with Rhonda Cobham-Sander, and she was really influential and, and you know, focusing me on the Caribbean. And I was, I was interested in general in U.S. imperialism in that time period, and the Caribbean became a, a, an interesting place to look at that issue. Um, this particular project, I was teaching Caribbean literature classes at Florida Atlantic University, and I would get quite a few Haitian and Haitian-American students enrolled in those classes. And I teach in the English department. I teach primarily literature and English. So I would maybe spend you know a few days at the end of the semester reading something by Abhij Dantekat and spending, let's say, a day talking about Haitian history to, as background to her work. But I realized quickly that my students, even the Haitian ones, might know a bit about the the revolution, but really not much else. You know nothing about the occupation or, or more contemporary, you know, it, Haiti. So I wanted to be able to let them engage with Haiti more, and I developed a class on the representations and reverberations of Haiti in the hemisphere. For example, looking at the U.S., Latin America, the Caribbean, other parts of the Caribbean, and the ways that 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 uh, Haiti influenced those other places, and uh, to some extent talking about the revolution, but also bringing that story more up to the present. Mm -hmm. So as I was developing this class, I was reading Mary Renda's book, Taking Haiti, and um, I found the case she makes for the ways that the occupation of Haiti shaped U.S. culture in the 20s and 30s really compelling, uh, the the rise of zombie movies in that time period, Mm -hmm. Eugene O'Neill's Broadway hit, Emperor Jones. And um, so she mentions C.L.R. James and the Black Jacobins as kind of part of this larger black uh, fascination with Haiti uh, in the 20s and 30s, Langston Hughes, James Walton Johnson, Zora Neil Hurston, all traveling to Haiti and writing about it. Right. And that got me really thinking about James and how we might read him in, in relation to the occupation.
0: So the one of the impetuses, as you say, and we can put these together with what you were just talking about, right, is that um, there's this key but kind of overlooked fact that that uh, anti-colonialism was being founded just at this moment, and just as um, and it was being founded through narratives of, of Haiti, but the narratives were in particular about the Haitian Revolution and not necessarily about the occupation, which was happening at the same time. And so that seems to be really like one of the one of the the key insights that that really fed the book in the way that it's shaped and framed. And so I'm wondering, is there, was there a particular text or conversation or a moment that suggested to you that this, that this convergence of events and um, currents of thinking were going to be fruitful in terms of a book?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was really thinking about the black Jacobins and, you know, thinking about it in, in this new way. So, you know, when I, when I thought started to think about the black Jacobins as having been, so, so C.L.R. James, you know, this is the this really foundational text of anti-colonialism for the first half of the 20th century. He is in Trinidad in the late 1920s. He says, you know, becoming interested in Haiti. He um, travels in the 1932 to England and begins research on Haiti. He's in the archives in Paris in 1933. So, I mean, this is exactly the time period when you, you have the newspapers that he's reading, that he talks about reading, uh, publishing articles about the Okai massacre in Haiti, uh, you know, stories about U- the U.S. commissions going to Haiti. Uh, so he's doing all this research during the occupation. In 1934, he writes the play Toussaint Louverture, the, the year that the occupation ends, and then, of course, the Black Jacobins is published in 1938. When he talks about, so so I, I, I'm thinking of all this, and I'm thinking, okay, I, I would like to look into, you know, in what ways was he interacting with the occupation, writing about it, influenced by it and as i looked into it i found essentially nothing that he he does not write about the occupation that scholars writing about the the context that influenced him do not mention the occupation that the story that's generally told is that it's the italian invasion of abyssinia that is you know the the impetus for him to write the black jacobins and that's happening sort of towards the tail end of and and so certainly as he's writing the black jacobins he has that in mind but clearly that's not The initial motivation for him in the late 1920s, early 1930s. So what I wanted to figure out was once I realized that there was this kind of archival silence, you know, around James and the occupation, what do I do with that, you know, and and that became really the driving idea behind the book.
0: I see. So that makes sense. Uh, It makes sense that you start with that. And actually, I was a little bit surprised because that book has received such attention lately and such wonderful attention in the work of people like David Scott, right? So I was really um, pleasantly surprised to find this kind of new insight and and to see you take that and and, uh, shape it into uh, such an important argument. So, okay, a couple of questions before we dive into some of the authors that you think about. One is a question that I was thinking about throughout as I was reading the book, and why do you think it's Haiti in particular, and not the island of Hispaniola? Because it it was entire it was the whole island was occupied, right? And so, why does it become Haiti that um, that elicits this kind of attention, as opposed to uh, what's going to uh, the Dominican Republic?
1: Yeah, that, I mean that's a, a great question. And as I was working on this, and you know, I was thinking about the silences of the archive and and what my story was silencing, and, and the way that the you know I actually begin with Juno Diaz and you know, the occupation of the Dominican Republic and then mm-hmm. quickly move away from that to talk right. about Haiti. And I mean, I, I think, you know, from, from my perspective, it made sense to do, to do that, that, that Haiti, because of what it represented as the first independent black nation in the hemisphere, you know, that it, it had this huge symbolic significance for the activists and the writers that I was looking at. And so that was why the occupation of Haiti became such a cause celeb for them, but yeah, obviously, like this is part of this larger story of US imperialism in, in many other places in the region, the Dominican Republic being most obvious, but you know, in Nicaragua and Panama and Cuba and mm-hmm. Puerto Rico, like it's so this is part of this larger story. And, you know, I I think what I'm what I'm trying to do in focusing on the occupation of Haiti is tell one part of that story that that I but I think in general in Caribbean studies there is a need for more attention to that. Um and I guess I'll say in Caribbean studies, in, when we're thinking about sort of black internationalism and, and radicalism from this time period, that, that, that you, the U.S. U.S. imperialism is often not as foregrounded in the way that it might be in you know, Latin American studies or something like that.
0: Yeah. And w- one of the interesting things that you do is you actually shift attention away from um, one of the more commonly known stories, which is the U.S. side of anti-imperialism. And so I wonder if we can just take a minute and think about the scope, right? So you're less interested in the U.S. side, although that does come into it. Um, But what you are interested in are the Caribbean writers who are working in a range of different settings and contexts, but all um, coming to this kind of anti-colonialism, anti-imperialism. So I wonder if you could tell us how you decided to... um, who who was included and who's excluded in this, in this kind of um, study and how did you ch- come to choose the authors that you did?
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 as I said, so Mary Renda's book was, was really helpful for me in getting me to think about the occupations kind of cultural significance. And she, and, an, and there are another, a number of other scholars as well who have written about African American responses and engagements with the occupation of Haiti there's a number of Haitianists who've written about you know the, the ways in which uh, in in Dijanisme and in Haiti and I'm using a Spanish pronunciation but the uh, the that the, the the Haitian responses to the occupation. So I didn't want to go over that ground again. What was interesting to me was the fact that there wasn't really much work and, and there's been a little bit since Matthew Smith in particular has done some work on Jamaica and Haiti but not not much work on the rest of the Caribbean mm-hmm. and how you know a, as you mentioned before that that we have. You know, famously, all of these narratives of anti-colonialism being told through the story of the, the Haitian Revolution. So the Black Jacobins being the best known, but this, you know, uh, uh, the plays by Glissant and um, Walcott, and right. you know, a number of other figures. That that the, the revolution is so important in this time period for thinking about decolonization throughout the region, and yet you know, there's very little attention to how that. The, that access to Haiti for these writers and thinkers is through the occupation, that Haiti is circulating as a kind of object of study and interest because of the occupation. Right. So, you know, as I was working on James, that led me to looking at George Padmore, who is you know, one of James's closest collaborators in this time period. And what I found, you know, interestingly, is that Padmore is really deeply engaged with the occupation. And so even as he and James are collaborating in the 1930s and James is not really writing about the occupation, Padmore, you know, really is. And, you know, Padmore is uh, what I found really influenced by these um, Caribbean communists in the U.S. in the 1920s. So, you know, that became part of the project. Uh, I was really interested in the literary responses as well. And, you know, especially the ways that there's this exotic primitivist version of the Caribbean that's circulating. So, you know, to talk about that, Eric Walrond and Alejo Carpentier became, you know, important parts of that discussion. So, those were some of the, the other places that the project went.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so this gives us a chance to talk a little bit more in detail about some of these writers. And one of the things that I found interesting was the way you sought out writers, or maybe they landed in your lap, um, but who didn't necessarily fit into national narratives. So, you talk about Claude McKay and Eric Walrond, for instance, um, in that regard. Uh, and you talk about the ways that they sort of refracted those kinds of U.S. discourses about Haiti and and, and Vodoun in particular. So I wanted to ask you about a term that you use, the term disidentification. And mm-hmm. I wonder if you can tell us what you mean by that and how you think um, these authors have been rendered as uh, kind of out of place.
1: Sure. So So, yeah, I mean, when I was looking at so McKay was was immediately someone you know that I knew would would fit in that, that when I was thinking about James I was thinking okay so by contrast um Walren, I'm I'm sorry McKay and Padmore you know that they're writing a lot about Haiti in this time period that they're writing explicitly about the occupation so you know that it, McKay immediately jumped out at me but then you know Eric Walren he's another one of these important you know Caribbean participants in the Harlem Renaissance in the 1920s well as I was reading Walren stuff it was really interesting because he doesn't write at all about Haiti. He doesn't feature Haitian characters. He doesn't write stories that are set in Haiti. You know, Walrond is, is from born in Guyana, grows up in Barbados and Panama, but he has these stories that are about the Caribbean supernatural. And frequently he, in, in at least two or three stories, um, they're about what he calls voodoo in the story. So even though they're not Haitian characters, even though they're not set in Haiti, they are Practicing what he's calling voodoo, which is of course the U.S. term for vodoun and it's become becoming interesting in the '20s to U.S. audiences because of the occupation. So, looking at Walrond, trying to think about okay, so what? Why is this Caribbean anglophone Caribbean writer writing his version of the Caribbean through these images of of Haiti, essentially? And looking at him in comparison to McKay, you see similar things going on with McKay. In in McKay's In Home to Harlem, in Banjo, the character that generally is read as this alter ego of the author is Ray, this Haitian character. Why do we have this Jamaican author McKay imagining his alter ego as Haitian? And so this idea by José Esteban Munoz of disidentification became a way of of thinking about that, that, that for McKay, for Walrond, in trying to make themselves legible to uh, the, the kind of audience they imagined, which was an audience whose familiarity of the Caribbean came through these images of Haiti. How did they do that? They did it through this kind of comparison to Haiti that, 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 that they, that their Caribbean, this had to be articulated through these kinds of stories about Haiti or through and in opposition to, I should say, these kinds of stories about Haiti.
0: So actually I want to pick up on something that you just talked about, which was audience. Um, and you don't talk about it too much in the book because you're interested in other things, but what do you think uh, were the audiences for these kinds of texts? And do you think the, the notion of Haiti and the occupation sort of got more attention because of the the ways that they were writing about them?
1: Yeah, so I mean, the the, the question of audience is complicated. I guess in the cases of McKay and Walrand, their primary audience seems to have been I'll just say American first, to some extent, I, I, white American. I mean that 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 for both McKay and Walron, they wanted to make money off of their writing, and that they saw that as the way that they could sell their writing. Mm-hmm. And so that's you know, that's I think the, probably the, the the easiest way to describe their audience as they envisioned it. But what happens with both of them, you know, especially McKay, is that that audience becomes really international. That McKay is somebody who's going to be really influential. To you know the the negritude writers that in in tropique in the 1940s you know Césaire is going to be translating McKay's things the you know, books and talk and they and the, the negritude writers are talking about banjo is how influential it was for them so there's definitely the circulation of their writing throughout you know throughout the world throughout the black diaspora so you know that, that's why, what I mean by audience being complicated um, I, it, it clearly is influencing the ways that McKay and Walrind are representing Caribbean-ness and, you know, that, that that's uh, you know, I, and I, I think that's, just in general, that's the story of Caribbean literature, is this kind of you know, inhabiting and pushing against these sort of outside representations of the region.
0: Yeah. So, in addition to that, I think that part of what the book aims to do is I think, uh, suggest a kind of alternative or additions to our archive of anti-colonialism or decolonization and one of the places you look is to the theater and to female playwrights so i wonder if we could get a sense of your argument um, in that regard by talking about one specific play which interests you a lot which is the play her Um, and so could you just tell us a little bit about how the play works within what you're trying to do in the book and a little bit about the play itself Sure. So, um,
1: yeah, what I what what I found in you know this is while I was doing research at the Schomburg Center at, in the Eulalie Spence papers is you know looking at at her materials. She's somebody who is born in Nevis who who um, comes to New York at a young age and and then it becomes a pretty well known playwright in the 1920s. Sort of mentored by W. B. Du Bois. One of her best known plays is this play, *Her*, which is. Um, it 's set in harlem it doesn 't have any kind of direct Caribbean um, connections to it, but as i 'm thinking about you know how we can see the occupation of Haiti reverberating through these other kinds of discourses you know and, and we 're thinking about all the debates in New York that are happening in the 1920s around the occupation of haiti that it 's this play that 's about space, about who gets to occupy it, and about u s imperialism so the the the, idea, the the plot of the play is that it 's set in this apartment that um, this couple comes to rent the apartment and the couple downstairs who's going to show the apartment to them sort of warns them off because of this ghost that's supposed to be upstairs that as the story unfolds you learn that this ghost is this uh philippine war bride who the landlord brought home when he was there in the war and that she's been you know haunting the apartment and and that the the story turns on sort of the the presence of this ghost so you know we have the story that's that's about capitalism that's about u.s imperialism that's about the ways that african americans in in the u.s are impacted by this history of imperialism that to me that that's this this story that you know is directly evoking all of these anxieties about the occupation of haiti that are you know that are being discussed in the black community in that time period
0: yeah so do you think that the female playwrights had a distinct perspective a different perspective or do you see them as adding or um, sort of being along the working along the same lines as the other authors that you look at.
1: I guess with Spence, I saw her perspective, you know, as as fairly similar to Walrand. I, I mean, there there were, and I was uh, I was focusing on these Caribbean responses more than the African American responses. But you know, among some of the African American playwrights who were writing about Haiti, you know, you have a, a number of plays by black female playwrights it being performed in, in the U.S. in the 1920s that are about the Haitian Revolution. In a number of those cases, you know, the play by Mae Miller, Christoph's Daughters, it's very explicitly meant to be kind of a corrective to this male founding father-focused version of the Haitian Revolution. Mm-hmm. And so, I you know, where that became more important for me, I guess, was in talking about um, Marcus Garvey versus Amy Jakes Garvey mm-hmm. and this this vision of... So, I mean... If, if CLR James is one of these people that, where you can see this kind of disavowal of the occupation where you know it' it's clearly must have been important to him but is something that he's not you know he's not directly engaging with, I saw the same thing for Garvey and in, in Garvey you actually see the African Blood Brotherhood, you know, various other black leaders criticizing Garvey for not engaging with the occupation and you know my sort of hypothesis with both James and Garvey is that garvey is for Garvey the, the Haitian revolution is really important for this kind of masculine. Black heroism that it represents. That he's always talking about Toussaint and himself as kind of a successor to, you know, to Toussaint. And the the, the occupation therefore is, you know, it's too much of a challenge to that version of, of of black sovereignty. Whereas for Amy J. Scarvey, you see her, you know, both in form as well as in message, engaging with Haiti in this different way, which is she has the the women's page in the Negro World um, newspaper. She's you know, not speaking in the singular voice, but maybe having her editorial column along with letters to the editor, in some cases from Haitian women, having various other columns by other people. So you see this kind of more inclusive, democratic engagement with, with Haiti that, you know, also allows for this other perspective on the, the the relationship between the UNIA and and the occupation.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. actually something that you just said, which is that, You know, the narratives that we have of the U.S. occupation don't have a hero, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a heroic narrative. And we have, um, you know, Charlemagne Peralt, who was killed. Uh, So it's hard to, if you're going to come up with a kind of romanticized narrative about decolonization, it is hard to to latch on to the occupation, even though, as you say, it's haunting um, all of this all of these writings at the same time
1: yeah I mean that that is that's exactly right, and that's exactly kind of the conclusion I came to through thinking about you know, thinking about james and and thinking through you know what that silence might mean and, and you know, using people like uh, Michel Rolf Trio and Sybil Fisher to kind of understand that that silence and the, yeah the conclusion I came to was, was that for James in particular that this idea of you know if we're if we're to, to take seriously Scott's idea of this anti-colonial romance, that the anti-colonial romance that Haiti represents, the occupation doesn't really fit into that, that the, right. you know, the, the occupation is is not part of that story and, and can't really be fit into that story.
0: Yeah, so I, I think that that's, that's really important. And another thing that's really important, which I think we're seeing a little bit more of as scholars are starting to step back and think about the Caribbean as a region, is that um, this coming together and the inevitable... Sort of um, confluence of u s and British imperialism at the same time in the same space, uh, and they've really been studied separately in the literature, so I really appreciated the ways that you were trying to bring those together um, and recognize that they were actually happening together at the same time.
1: Yeah, I mean I, I think that that was you know I, that was definitely one of my goals and you know I guess especially the the chapter about the African Blood Brotherhood. The black communists in the U.S., you know, one of the things that I was seeing there was how these are mostly British subjects you know, who begin with this goal of, uh, of decolonization, meaning political independence. And it's really through seeing the U.S. occupation that that goal shifts a lot and that, that you know, they, become, they become more uh, involved in the communist international and, and you know, they become more radicalized by this idea that decolonization might need a different goal than, than just political independence, that if you look at what happens to Haiti, political independence isn't enough to, you know, to actually create sovereignty or, or freedom.
0: Right. So we we don't have time to go through all of the authors you touch on and the details, but before closing, I'd really like to talk about the last chapter where you sort of go global um, and you do that through the work of George Padmore, who we've mentioned a little bit. Um, but it's so interesting to think about the way that he connects all of these kinds of things, not just British and U.S. Um, uh, imperialism and and, and and the critiques of that, but also Um, he connects the Caribbean to decolonization movements in Africa as well. And so that just seems like all of these things are coming together once in this person. Um, And so I was thinking uh, after reading that chapter that in addition to all of these particular insights, there's something really interesting about the method of using biography to sort of rewrite the histories of these decolonizing movements, and I'm I'm wondering if that's what you had in mind, or if it just ended up that way in terms of uh, following these threads through the, through the movement of one one person.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it, I hadn't thought about it exactly that way, and it really was, you know, like you said, following the threads. I mean, it was thinking, okay, so you know, we have this idea being discussed in this particular space and with these particular people but now we have some of these people moving to these other spaces so you know Padmore is, is is perfect because you know he's in Harlem in the 20s when the occupation is such a important topic then he's with C L R James in the 1930s uh, you know as James is writing about Haiti he's in Moscow you know he's in in Germany uh, editing the, the the Negro Worker and the Negro Worker all, all the ways that it's circulating and and influencing black thinkers you know throughout the diaspora uh, and then, of course, you have him you know in in Manchester and then in Africa as African decolonization is beginning, so the fact that he's so shaped in his early writing by engagement with u s imperialism and the occupation of Haiti, and then he's so influential in all these other spaces that was you know yeah, that was what i was was seeing was that kind of diasporic movement
0: do you think he's unique, or do you think there are other people who might fit into this um sort of moment, or in terms of the ways that they circulated and and touched on and shaped all of these different kinds of movements? I, I, I don't
1: think he's unique. I mean, I, and one of the challenges in this work was, again, with the issue of silencing, the fact that, you know, what I had was, you know, the writings of Cyril Briggs, for example, but not, you know, whatever Grace Campbell's contributions to the African Blood Brotherhood were. So, you know, she... she uh, Everyone in the time period is recognizing that those are the two main driving forces behind the African Blood Brotherhood. Campbell leaves very little behind in the written record, so what is her, you know, what is her ideology and what and what, what is her contribution? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing with Padmore. That Padmore is writing extensively, so we have this massive record of you know of his thoughts and who he is influenced by and who he's influencing. But there are, are many other figures who are you know also doing this kind of organizing work. But, but, you know, if, if they're not writing as extensively as he is, you know, maybe aren't showing up in the archive as, as easily.
0: Well, it seems like you may have opened up a lot of sort of research projects for the future. <laughs> I hope so, yeah. Um, so I've taken up lots of your time. But before we close, I just want to ask you what you're working on next. Is there a new project in the works?
1: Yeah, so I mean a, a couple of things. One of them is I'm I'm working on ed, helping edit with Alison Dunell, Cordella Forbes and a couple of other people this this literary history of the Caribbean that, you know, I I want to sort of in the ways we've been talking about this this kind of revisionist idea of including other versions of the story, you know, I I wanted to to do that to some extent. So that's part of what I'm working on. I I'm, I'm I'm still interested in I I became very interested in Eric Walrand Mm -hmm. during this project so i'm still interested in in pursuing a bit more some of the ways that you know we can see him and what he's doing in the 20s as kind of giving us an insight into i i guess the different possibilities available to and the different positions that that writers in that time period were taking so i'm i'm going to continue with that too but yeah that's at this point what i'm what i'm looking at
0: yeah, Walrund is fascinating and has received a little bit of attention lately, but probably not, not enough.
1: Mm-hmm. That's my feeling.
0: <laughs> okay, well, those sound like terrific projects, and we will look forward to seeing their completion. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure.